All right. Good morning, church. Good to have each of you here this morning. You know, uh, just ask for your attention. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we just want to express our gratitude for uh, having you here with us and trust that uh, you'll be able to hang out after the service. We have a little bit of a fellowship time and would love to have an opportunity to interact with you and to meet you. If you want to leave any official record of your visit, uh, you can do that at the welcome desk right out front. So we have two adult Sunday school classes that I just want to give you a reminder about. One is on relationships. And uh, the other one is on the book of Romans that Doug is teaching. So if you're looking for a place to learn and grow, that's available to you every uh, Sunday morning at 930. Uh, the other thing I want to bring to your attention, if you, when you were coming in, you might have seen posters uh, out front. Uh, we have a financial planning uh, seminar that will be taking place the first Saturday in the month of March. The way you sign up for that is this little thing called a QR code on the back, so you just scan that and sign up for that, and uh, we would love to have you come. The, the gentleman that's doing the seminar is really a lifelong friend of mine, uh, one of the more qualified accountants in the Philadelphia region, and uh, he just has some great insight. He's a brother in Christ, so he brings a lot of balance and understanding to these things, so it's a great opportunity. We're going to do two sessions and then a Q&A session, so hopefully... Uh, you know, a lot of people have been asking, like, okay, what age? If you have any thoughts about your long-term picture in your life in terms of finances, uh, retirement, those kind of things, you may start, may want to start thinking about that a little earlier. And so this will give you a chance to do that. So we want to make you aware of that. Um, Linda Matthews, I, I talked to Tim this morning real quick, and Linda just, she kind of was yelling for the phone from him. She just wanted to say thank you. Uh, to the church family. A lot of you have provided meals for her, have been, been expressing the love of Christ to her, and she is genuinely overwhelmed. She's, she's a lady that's usually the one doing the serving and has hard, had a very hard time slipping into this role of being served. And a lot of you can probably understand that you're doers, right? And sometimes you get to sit back and say, I got to let someone else help me with this burden. So she's made a strong point this morning of just wanting to say thank you uh, to you as a church family. And as one of your pastoral team members, I too, just, it's so encouraging. We put that uh, meal train email out and it was full within one day, all right, two weeks of meals provided. And uh, so that was just such a beautiful encouragement. So last Sunday we talked in the book of Revelation and one of the last parts of that, that discussion talked about the book of life, right? And it said, rejoice that your name is written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life. And I, I was thinking back on the, on the gospel of Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends the disciples out to do ministry and they, they, they work in very miraculous and powerful ways. And when they come back, Jesus says, well, how'd it go? And they're like, hey, even the demons are subject to us in your name, right? And they're just all up about that. And Jesus interestingly says to them, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Right, so as we sing this morning, can I encourage you in your thinking, in your worship, to be mindful that, that your name's on the registry if you've trusted Christ, if you've believed in that, that his shed blood paid for your sin and you've asked God for forgiveness and turned from your sin or striving to follow him, there's hope for you. And if you don't know Christ, do that today. 
okay? And as we sing, just let this be an opportunity to express your love to God for the truth that you're, you are secure in him because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, as we come into your presence today, uh, we acknowledge that it is a privilege to worship you. And as we sing truth, God, today, for every person in this room who has trusted Christ, remind them that their name is written indelibly in the Lamb's book of life. And for that reason, they can have a profound and deep and life-changing hope. Jesus, help us today to heed your words. Don't rejoice in the lesser things, but rejoice in the ultimate thing, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, we lift up our very dear friends, Linda Matthews, Diana Kelly, others in our church family that are going through seasons of struggle. Father, we ask that your favor would just be resting on these people. God, our simple request is that there would be healing for them in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We lift them before you. We trust that you will work powerfully and in life-changing ways uh, to glorify yourself through their experiences. Uh, as Linda begins radiation treatments tomorrow, Father, we ask that there would be just extreme favor as uh, medicine and your working come together in a very beautiful way. We trust that you will work in ways that amaze us and cause us to look at you and say, God, thank you for what you've done. We trust you for all those things. As we sing now, Lord, attract our hearts to the glory of your name and change us through it, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him together. Shout out your praise, that joy. 
Sure. 
Yeah. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful time to worship you, Lord God. What a privilege it is, Lord Father. Lord, we remember those in our congregation today that are ill, those who are having financial difficulties, those who are having problems in relationships, those who are having multiple problems everywhere, Lord God. Father, we ask you that uh, uh, you would bless, Lord God, those who are seeking your face, Lord Father. Father, we know that you are Jehovah Jireh. You are our provider. You are Jehovah Nisi, our great physician, Lord God. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, that we can come to you through your throne, Lord Father. And we can ask you for all things. And Lord, I pray, Father, that as Doug brings the word today, Lord God, that as he speaks the words, uh, your, your words, Father, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open, our ears would be open, and that we would be transformed, O oh God, to be more into the image of your Son. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The reading for today is Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said. And now if we go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, he said, the word says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Oh, good morning. So uh, children ages five to eight can be dismissed for junior church. Uh, help yourself to the back. Well, I, I would imagine if you've been around Christianity for any period of time, you've heard some really good sermons and some really lousy sermons, okay? Now, don't be specific on the lousy part, okay? But yeah, you, you've heard some great sermons, and, and, and you know, maybe it's because you go like, oh, wow, can that guy deliver? Man, it's smooth, and it's clear, and passionate, and whatever. Or you might just say, oh, the content off the charts. I mean, it's biblically accurate, it's practical, like I can kind of live it. I'm thinking of a sermon which contains some of these topics. Tell me if this is a pretty good sermon. Recognizing your security and hope in God the Father through Jesus Christ. That, that, that's a pretty good topic, yeah. Finding purpose in your life in light of God's design for you. Living authentically from the inside out in a way that emulates and honors the Lord. I like that one. Being real when you worship. Knowing how to pray. Worrying less about money and thinking more about God. Living humbly as you seek to help other Christians with struggles. Truly coming to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Being able to discern what is false and what is true. Being genuine in your faith. And learning to live wisely rather than foolishly. That, that, that would be a great sermon, wouldn't it? 
And that sermon is the sermon that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He deals with all those topics, and he doesn't deal with them in the abstract. He uses powerful illustrations and comes right at us. The Sermon on the Mount, on the one hand, is really encouraging, and on the other hand, it's unnerving all at the same time. Haven't you found that if you've read it? And so we're, we're beginning a series on what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And um, so the, the theme for it is Christ-centered kingdom living. And I, I really appreciate the, uh, the song mix that was chosen today because I want to do some connections between what you heard and what the text actually says. Here's what I want to do with you this morning as we think about the Sermon on the Mount. So actually... We're not going to actually start the sermon today. We're just going to get like as close as we can. Okay? And what I want to do today is I want to start real broad with it. Well, let me, let, me think, let, me, let me say it like this. Sherry and I do a fair amount of uh, premarital counseling. And, you know, when, when we first meet the couple, uh, they come in and they sit down. And we know that they're engaged or else they wouldn't be with us. Okay? So we kind of get that. But I don't, just, I don't just launch right into telling them what to do. I normally say, hey, give me the backstory. How did you guys meet? You know, and blah, blah. So we get the backstory. And then we say, like, um, and tell me how you got engaged. Like, did you do it on the mountainside? And, you know, I'll tell you what. Some guys can be incredibly creative. I mean, sometimes some of the stuff's way over the top and I don't even recommend it, but they, I mean, I got to give high marks for creativity. But you know, I want to kind of know all of that. When we come to the sermon, I want to pull back and I want to hear the backstory. The book of Matthew itself. Then I want to come closer and closer and closer and then just briefly talk about the, an overview of the, uh, of the sermon on the mount. So I'm going to start with context for the sermon, and then deal with the content of the sermon. And that's all I want to do today. And then James will lead us next week out on what we call the Beatitudes. All right, so that's pretty, pretty much it. If you get that, and you got something you can take home in, in your faith walk with Christ, then that is a complete home run. So let me, let me start with the context. Um, and there will be parts of this, stay with me, because there'll be parts of this you'll go, this feels a little teachy to me, you know? We like the preachy more than the teachy. Well, I'll try to do preachy with the teachy, but I'm going to do a little bit of teachy today, okay? So just kind of stay with me. Um, try to throw a couple jokes in or something to keep you going. But here's where I might, might start. Um, if, if, if we had time and we could run through the whole gospel of Matthew, it, it's interesting when you compare the four gospels. The first three Gospels, you know what the first three Gospels are called? What do we call the first three? We call them the Synoptic Gospels because there's similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is, is more different. About 90% of the material is unique to John. And what you get when you read the Gospels is a very complementary approach where there's some stuff you learn in Matthew that you didn't see in Luke and vice versa. So it's really quite good. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a fair amount of similarities too called the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew is the most structured of the four Gospels. I mean, there's no question about it. He will just often rearrange things, not chronologically, but logically. 
where he'll bring that material together because he wants you to hear a topic and get it. It's very, very common in Matthew. One of the things you find in Matthew is he has what we call five teaching blocks, which up there is called a discourse. So when you hear discourse, it's just a teaching block. It's a lot of teaching. And he actually pops back and forth between narrative, where he tells a story, and there's, there's teaching in it, but it's largely narrative. And then I'll have a section that is teaching. There might be some story in there, but it's largely teaching. And at the end of each of those teaching blocks, the text says, and it came about when Jesus finished teaching or giving parables. It's repeated after every one of those teaching blocks. So you're reading through this and you're going like, that must be important. The first one is what we're going to be dealing with in the next couple of months, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and I might just say this, if you want to just see it like this, Matthew 5 to 7. Matthew 10 is going to be a whole teaching block on outreaching to others and what you face from others when you reach out to others. Well, that's a pretty good topic too, isn't it, for us to hear? Whole teaching block on it. Matthew 13 is called a whole series of stories about parables. So when you read that section, you get done and you're going to realize, what should I expect in God's world today and tomorrow? What's it like to be part of God's kingdom? Do I, does everybody favor and listen to me? Not so much. And he wants his people to know all that. Matthew 18, he talks about how you and I should be treating each other as the body of Christ. And Matthew 24 and 25, for all you future buffs that like to know how the world's going to end, Jesus tells us how it's all going to end. And Matthew wants you to get done reading his book where you really have a sense of what is entailed in God's kingdom. Gets to the end of the book. You remember this? We have what we call the Great Commission. And there's one section in there that really strikes me as interesting. So he, he talks about the fact, make disciples, and I want you to baptize people, and I want you to teach them everything that I've commanded you. So here's Jesus in Matthew's gospel, the great teacher who wants his men and women to teach his teachings after he leaves. And the book ends. That's how the book of Matthew ends. So that's kind of the big, if you will, uh, bird's eye view of what's going on in the book. We might actually take the book and break it down like this. If you, can, if you like charts, I like charts. And where we want to focus is just in that first block where Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that first teaching block, the Sermon on the Mount, is found. Okay? And here is what I hope will be really helpful for you. Um, if you have your Bibles, and, and, or you can just read it here. I've got it for you. So you, want, you can turn, but you don't need to. Remember I said Matthew is the most structured of, of, of the Gospels? Um, what you find um, in, in, you find in 423 and again in 935, you find these words. Let me read it. Just read it right off of here. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among people. Listen to what chapter 9, verse 35 says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Does that feel kind of like deja vu to you? Like you're going like, hey, bud, how many times do you have to say that? But be careful, that bud is an apostle, so we want to be careful. But nonetheless, do you know what Matthew's doing? Matthew is saying, two things I want you to know that are critical in Jesus' ministry. He had a message of proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And he did miracles. And just to help you with all of that, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the gospel of the kingdom. It's Jesus' authoritative words. Matthew introduces it, and then he says, look, here it is. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you know what he does in Matthew 8 and 9? If you read in Mark's account, Luke's account, the miracles that are found in Matthew 8 and 9 are spread throughout Mark and Luke. They, they occur at all different times. You know what Matthew's doing? He's grabbing all those miracles from the ministry of Christ, like 10 of them. And he's bringing them back and he's putting them all together in Matthew 8 and 9. And you're going like, Matthew, why are you like reordering things? Because he says, I don't want you to miss the point. Jesus is the one with the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus is everything he says he is. Let me show you one miracle after another miracle, after another miracle, after another miracle. So by the time you get done reading Matthew 8 and 9, you go like, oh, wow. Exactly. And Matthew says, don't miss the gospel of the kingdom. Hit the truth. And don't miss the fact that Christ did miracles. Now, the significance of the miracles was that they were pointing to his authoritative teaching. They were always in service to that. Because in Christ's ministry, people got mixed up so often, didn't they? Look, there was a lot of people that said, Jesus is a lucky charm. Like, if I can just get close to him and, and he'll heal me, man, life is good. And they weren't so concerned about what he taught. They were concerned what they could get all out of him. And, and Jesus had to do those things because those things showed us who he is and also showed us a foretaste of what is coming. Do you know, we pray faithfully for those that are sick in our, in our, in our congregation. Sometimes God in his grace completely heals them here and now. And sometimes he chooses to heal them after they die. He always heals. The question is when? And what we experience in this life when God in his kindness heals people is a foretaste of what will be full and complete later. I can't force that back now in every situation. We should pray for it with great passion and we've all seen God do it. And I love it. 
I wish he'd do it more, but I don't rule the world. He does. Miracles were critical to the, to the ministry of Christ. They showed who he was, and they gave a, gave a foretaste of what is coming. Very, very, very important. The one, though, is in service to the other. Okay. Probably enough said there. See what the next slide is. Ooh. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The gospel of the kingdom. This is exciting to me to see what I have up there too sometimes. Like, oh, I put that one in there. That's good. Um, so if, if, if the kingdom is good news, we better try to figure out what the kingdom is. Fair enough? So here's the definition. I had a really short definition. And, and, and it's, it's, it's one of the curses about being a teacher. You keep going like, oh, I should put another little thing in there. And then another little thing. In the, and I told my wife, I said, okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I won't, I'll just leave it here. Okay. But the kingdom and the teaching of the kingdom is good news. In what way? Well, let's define it and let me talk about it. Okay. In the gospels, the kingdom of God and Matthew, more often than not, called the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's probably to show the contrast between the ways of men on earth and God's ways way in heaven. But anyway, in the Gospels, the, the, king, the kingdom of God is God's promised and climactic. Now, have you ever heard this word salvific before? I was going to put the word redemptive down, but eh, I wanted something broader. Salvific means just salvation, salvational or something like that, okay? But salvational isn't a word, so I had to use salvific, okay? Salvational, think of that. But it's God's promised and climactic salvific rule in our Lord Jesus Christ, which was inaugurated in his first coming and will be consummated in his second coming. You go back and you read the Old Testament. And one of the things you find is uh, again and again, God is making promises. God is giving us pictures. And, and as he is, he's pushing us forward to say, something's coming, someone's coming, something's coming, someone's coming. And, and, and in the midst of that, what do you see in the nation of Israel? Success or failure? failure again and again and again. I've often thought about this. Think about the book of Deuteronomy. They haven't even gone into the land yet, right? And Moses is saying to them, oh, by the way, you're going to go into the land and you're going to completely blow it. And you're going to fail and you're going to go into exile. Until God does a work in your heart, from the inside out, through his spirit. And then he's done. <laughs> but you see what we're finding? I'm reading the Old Testament, and I'm saying, it's coming, it's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And I need it because I can't. I can't, I just keep failing. I need someone to do something from the inside out. So when the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, it means it's come. Christ has come. He is the one who in his first coming and second coming will bring both salvation and complete reconciliation at the end of the age. Now folks, that's good news. 
That's really good news to people who live in a world where everything is broken and upside down. People are going their own way, doing their own thing, and it's a complete mess, it's a fiasco. We need good news. In the first century, the Jews needed good news. Now, they were convinced what that good news would entail. They thought that the good news meant that Messiah would come, and when Messiah would come, da 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 those Romans wiped out. Everything wiped out. Messiah's gonna do good, great things for the Jews. Yeah, that's what they were looking for. And can you understand why they would feel that way? Would you, if you're living under the oppressive Romans, don't you want deliverance? For sure. And they're thinking physical deliverance now, and God's saying, oh no, 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 no. His name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Doug Finkbeiner's biggest problem is not people around me. It's me. And I need one to forgive me of my sins. And Jesus comes and he gives good news, but not in the way that people were expecting. They were thinking this whole thing's gonna get swept up right now. And Jesus is saying, no, there's... Um, there's a part A and a part B, if you will. This one is inaugurated and this one is coming. You can count on it. And we've been waiting 2,000 years for that, but it's coming. And Jesus comes on the scene to save us from our sins. But he is the ruler king that everybody will bow to at the end of the age. You see? So, so he put, it's, it's, it's good news and here's the other thing that's really funny. And I, like I said, I don't, I don't want to take away from what James or anybody is doing next week. But for, for, for just one quick second, James, I'll be really careful here. But, but if I told you, um, okay, let me tell you good news. The kind of people that are really fortunate and blessed. People who... Um, are completely destitute and cry a lot. Wouldn't you look at me and say, like, what is up with Finkbeiner? There's nothing good about that, is there? And the beauty of what Christ does is he comes into a world that's broken and he changes us even though he doesn't change all of our circumstances. They're often hard but it's good news because he does something only he can do in people's lives who often struggle knowing where the whole thing's gonna end. Do you see? This is the good news of the kingdom. And this is what the text is gonna tell us about. It's God's climactic rule. Anything up there? Uh, yeah, that's probably enough. Okay, kind of makes sense. But so that's the kingdom. So that's enough on context. So we got kind of, kind of come down. Let's look at the content, all right? And as we talk about the content, I want to talk about that lengthy passage that Ed just read to us, <laughs> right? Because you say, what was up with Ed? He read like two verses in chapter five and then two verses in 
chapter seven. Well, that's all I asked him to do. Just bookend it for me. That's all I want you to do. But I want to go back and look at those bookends as the setting and then look at the actual content briefly with you. All right. So here you go. Here is kind of the major units, as I would understand it, for the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, see the yellow stuff? That's what I'm going to talk to you about now. The, the setting and then the final response. So let's go back to chapter 5. And actually, I'd like to go to chapter 4, verse 25 for just a minute. Um, who does Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount to? Do you remember? This is tough to get wrong because some will say, oh, disciples. Yeah, it's true. But by the time you get to the end of the message, you find out that the whole multitude is listening to him. So, you know, you know it kind of, kind, of, kind of goes both ways. But look at 425 for just a moment. After all these miracles and everything that Jesus is doing, verse 25 of chapter 4 says this, and great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Folks, that's like, with the exception of Samaria, that's like everywhere in the area of Palestine. I mean, they're coming from all over. Now think about it. If Jesus is doing all these incredible kinds of miracles and everybody's coming to him, wouldn't you want to just do a whole lot more miracles? Get those crowds coming. And it's in that context that chapter 5, verse 1 should be read. And when he saw the multitude, he did even more miracles to draw everybody in. No. No. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying. Do you see what he's showing us here? Yeah, the miracles are showing you Christ is Christ. You can believe that. But don't stop there. Don't get caught up there. Let that lead you to who he is and what he's actually saying and doing. <clears throat> and so he gathers his disciples. And of course, the multitude we're going to find by the end, they're gathering around too. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're saying, is it for the disciples or the multitude? What do you think my answer is? Yeah. You know, and, and anybody can read it. You can be somebody who doesn't know Christ and read the Sermon on the Mount. God can use it. You can be somebody who does know Christ and read the Sermon on the Mount, and God will use it. Now, it says he goes up on a mountain. Is that just like filler? Talking along, saying, yeah, you know. Um, so often in, in Matthew and in the Gospels and in the whole Bible, mountains are often the place where God speaks. And many scholars, and I would be of this same persuasion, see that what you have here is Jesus being the ultimate Moses. Moses went up, even earlier in Matthew, remember it talks about the fact that, that, that you've got a child that a despot wants to kill. Do you ever remember reading that anywhere in the Old Testament? Happens with Moses, doesn't it? 
And there's a whole series of interesting parallels, 40 years, 40 days in the wilderness, all kinds of interesting things. And, and I think in many ways, in the Old Testament, he's speaking to Jews and Moses is everything to the Jews because he went up to the mountain and God gave him the revelation. Jesus goes up to, to, the, to the mountain. And he doesn't receive revelation. He gives it. He's, he's not Moses. He's much better than Moses. And again and again, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say things like, you have heard it said, referring back to the Old Testament, but I say unto you. See what he's doing? I mean, no, think about it. Jesus is either the living Lord or a complete egomaniac. Do you see that? A Jew coming on the scene saying, you thought Moses was something? You ain't seen nothing yet. Hi, hi, or something. You're like, what is up with that guy? He's like so much into, I have authority and people will stand before me and, and, I'll, and I'll say, I never knew you and I will. And you're like, this guy is either God, the God man, or else he's a lunatic. There's no middle ground. You've heard, I've heard sometimes people of a more liberal persuasion say, you know, Jesus is a wonderful teacher. He wasn't God, but he was a wonderful teacher. You can't say that. You can't say that. He's either a wonderful teacher as the God man, or he's a complete egomaniac and deceiver. There's no middle ground. He's the Lord. He's God come in the flesh. That's who he is. And he goes up, to this mountain to give you the good news of the kingdom that under the old covenant, it was incomplete. It was good, but it was incomplete. It needed Christ as the fulfillment. It needed Christ to explain the Old Testament. It needed Christ to empower us to live as God calls us to live. It's good news, folks. He goes up to the mountain. He sits down. Now, that sounds strange. I mean, because you say, think about it, you're standing. Yeah. I mean, if I came up and sat, sat down there, I don't know what you'd think. Um, but in antiquities, that, that's what they would do. It was, it was a form of authority, again, to sit down and actually to teach. I know we ought to think about that, Tim. Is that something we want to consider doing? So just put a chair up here. I, wouldn't you love to see Tim uh, having to sit on a chair? And um, Anyway, James, wouldn't that be fun? I don't know, whatever. Um, so we'll, we'll have to talk about that. No, no, I'm, I'm whatever, whatever. Yeah, it would be interesting anyway, that's for sure. So Jesus is teaching. His teaching was central to his ministry. We've already met, I've already mentioned that. Um, and his teaching was authoritative. He was the greater Moses. The fulfillment, the good news in a world of bad news, which doesn't mean he's going to change all your circumstances. He does something much better. He changes you in the midst of those circumstances for his glory. It's very, very, very different. Do you remember when you get to the end of Matthew 7? Listen to what it says. And read this. I'll just read it again. Verse 28. So after Jesus is done, look at verse 28. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, 
The multitudes were amazed at his teaching. You go like, where'd they come from? Well, obviously he's teaching the disciples, but they're gathering around too to hear, okay? The multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So if you lived in the first century and I was a rabbi, one of the ways I would teach sometimes is I'd say, um, Rabbi Hillel says this. And Rabbi Gamaliel says this. And Rabbi Akaba says this. Actually, he was second century, but whatever. Yeah, and you just, you just kind of throw out these different rabbis. You're supposed to, because enough guys actually say it, it tends to give some credence to what I'm saying. And I'm, or, or maybe I'm throwing another thing out there. Not Jesus. Jesus doesn't come up and say, hey, hey, you know, there's a lot of different views. And I just want you to know them and have a good day. I'm not Jesus. Jesus comes up and says, you've heard, but I say unto you. Boom, this is it. This is where the whole thing ends. It ends with me and everything I teach. So complete authority. He says this then when it comes to the actual takeaway. This, so this would be the Sermon on the Mount in one sentence from my perspective, okay? Um, as God's blessed children, prioritize genuinely righteous living under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ in light of God's kingdom. Can I just unpack a couple things like there and then I'll let you go. To my shame, I don't know if my shame, whatever you want to call it, to my ignorance, it could be a variety of things. Um, in preparation for this whole series a couple weeks ago, and I was just kind of reading through the Sermon on the Mount, I never noticed something before. Many, I mean, I've taught the Sermon on the Mount before. You know what I noticed? Roughly 20 times in the Sermon on the Mount, God is addressed as our Father. I never saw that before. I was telling James about it, saying like, you know, this is crazy. I hate to admit it, but like, I, I missed that somehow. It wasn't like Jews never talked about God as father. They, there's, there's some examples of that, but it's not a lot. And in the gospel of the kingdom, he wants you to know if you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ and you're in relationship with him, God is your father. That's powerful, folks. That makes us blessed people. No matter what happens in our life, we are blessed people to say, God is my father. So as God's blessed children, prioritize genuinely righteous living. And I, I, I want to just, I want to qual- make, I was thinking about the songs we sang today, which were just beautiful. And I want to be really clear on this. When you hear the word righteousness in the New Testament, what do you think of? Well, if you're reading Paul, what you better think of is that there was a time in Doug Finkbeiner's life when he was going his own way and he bowed his knee and said, Christ, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of all my sins because of what you've done on the cross of Calvary and the fact that you've resurrected. And in one moment... 
God looked at Finkbeiner and said, he's righteous because he has the righteousness of my son. I was declared to be in a state of righteousness, even though I walked out and probably lied a minute later or whatever. I was declared because of my union to Christ to be in the right with God. It's very, very powerful because you will never find your way to heaven by your own good works. Never. You cannot be in the right with God by yourself. It's impossible. That's why Christ came. So sometimes the word righteousness is just talking about in one moment you are declared righteous. But in Matthew, Matthew is not so much looking at the declaration that you're, you're right, you have a righteous standing before God. He's talking about how that righteous standing impacts the way you live. You will have a righteous lifestyle. Not to become a Christian because you are a Christian. It's the outworking evidence consequence of being declared righteous. Does that make sense, folks? Because you can't get these mixed up. You can't get these mixed up. The last thing we want you to do working through a series on the Sermon of Mount saying, you know, I think I might be able to pull that off. You won't pull it off. You were meant to read that if you're lost and say, I can't pull that off. Come to the one who can forgive you and change your life. That's it. But if you are a believer, these are characteristics and qualities and lifestyles that can become a progressive reality in your life because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Do, do you see the difference? So I, I want to be real clear, clear. I'm very aware of Paul's declared righteousness. We're dead without it. But Matthew is looking at the evidence of that declared righteousness. Does, does that make sense? So as God's blessed children, prioritize genuinely righteous living. I had to put the word genuine there because all the way through, because you've got true righteousness being contrasted with false righteousness by the Pharisees and religious leaders in this book, in, the, in this sermon. And man, they were hypocrites on steroids. Man alive, good day, look at good, man. They came up and did this. You go, Ooh. yeah, they were very impressive. And their hearts were far from God. And again and again in the sermon, it's a call to be genuine from the inside out. Because that's always the way God works. I think I've used this before. It's the difference between a fruit tree and a Christmas tree. What do you know about a Christmas tree? It's dead. And what you do is you beautify it from the outside. And man, the Pharisees beautified man alive. But it's dead. A fruit tree, on the other hand, grows from the inside out. And that fruit may take some time, and you have a couple, and then it takes a while for this couple more, so it gets sloppy and messy, but there's real, real growth from the inside out. And Jesus said, that is genuine righteousness in contrast to religiosity, and that is from the inside out. So as God's blessed people prioritize genuinely righteous living, 
under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, all the way through here, Jesus is the authority. I say unto you, I say unto you, at the end of the age, I will say, I will say. It's all the way through. In light of God's kingdom. God's kingdom has broken into this world in a very powerful way in the person of Jesus Christ. And it'll be consummated at the end of the age. And we want to spend the next couple months unpacking that. Talking about what that means when we worship and when we worry and all the stuff that comes, comes at us. So this is what I would ask of you. I'm going to close in prayer, but I want to give you about a minute to pray before I pray. Would you just talk to God about what you've heard? You say, hey, 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 Finkbeiner, I, I, like, I don't know this. I'm not even a Christian. I, I don't understand all this God stuff. You just quietly bow your head then. That's okay too. But you can start a conversation with God. That would be great. And just talk to God about where you are and what you would love his spirit to do in your life over the next couple months. Let's pray. Our Father, it is a great joy to call you Father. We are reminded of that as we read through the Sermon on the Mount. What a privilege that you are for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We would pray that your spirit would do a good work in our lives for those of us that have trusted in you, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. May this be a time in which you put your finger on areas of our life that need to change, that we can't change, but you can as we humbly come before you. And Lord, for anybody here who is not a believer, maybe they're like that multitude, our prayer would be that during this series, they would choose to become forgiven followers of Jesus Christ and start on a journey with him by trusting in him and him alone as their Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.
is my prayer and I know there are so many in this building that this is their prayer that you would take the gifts that you have given us and bring light into this world 
Father, I'm reminded every day of so many who are hurting and do not have hope and it is inside of us and you have given us the opportunity to give that to them. May they see the difference in our life, Father, and may it draw them to you. For you are the only place where there is peace. You are the only place where there is change. And there is only, you are the only place where we can matter, Father. Praise you, Lord. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.